We are back with the solo cast after a string of guests on the show. Let's see if I remember how to do this. On this episode, Pablo Escobar's influence reaches Formula One. And I seek redemption at round six of Beamer Challenge, this time at Streets of Willow. Let's start the show. This thing is a freaking monster. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and we are getting right into it. Before he was the biggest narco-terrorist in Medellin, Colombia, he was the fastest man in Medellin. Pablo Escobar was a permanent fixture in newspapers through the 80s and 90s. I mean, uh, it's there's countless documentaries. There's probably more documentaries than there are tracks in America. But his first mention in a newspaper was actually as a rookie racer for the Copa Renault, uh, where they ran 24 horsepower Renault fours. And it is claimed that he owned this Renault, uh, Econo racer well into his cocaine campaign. So the first time he was in media at the time was as a race car driver. Now, in his 1979 rookie season, um, in those newspaper mentions, there were they kept track of the actual championship. And soon, uh, soon upon entering that season, he was second overall, only 13 points behind the leader. And he literally walked into the sport that that year, earlier that year. I don't even think this was a full season at the time. And he competed in uh, six races, and by the end of the 1979 season, El Patron was sitting second on the championship podium. So in his rookie season, seemingly with very little exp prior experience, he wins. He didn't win the championship. He's a runner-up in the championship, but that's a pretty, pretty good result. Now, at the time, Pablo's drug escapades weren't well-known, so most people kind of looked like you know looked at it like okay he has a knack for it this guy's he's a driver uh but if you look closer um even at his first season there were some questions so copa renault was a spec series you know then a spec series means that everything needs to be equal in these cars well pablo's car was pablo's car was recognized as a little more equal than others that is to say there was some obvious signs that the car was a lot faster than all others on the grid. And he was reported to have lost positions in corners consistently, but suspiciously made them up in the straights. This sounds very familiar a la Corvette owners. I, I got to keep pressing that button. Now, um, you know, despite the sort of bending of the rules by the future narco-terrorist, he was never officially challenged or caught for cheating. So we can only speculate that this is the truth. And, I mean, we know race car drivers. They might have just been saying that because uh, they were mad that they lost. Who knows? The only people that know the reality is Pablo Escobar and his mechanics. But it seems that there was something fishy going on. But if it wasn't enough, this is in his rookie season uh, you know, need I remind you, this isn't well into some, you know, three years, four years, five year campaign. This is the first season. If it wasn't enough that he was cheating with the car, he had some off track influence. So his tactics tactics went beyond the track. He uses connections with the local police to prevent rivals from reaching the track. So he was like literally having them obstruct these drivers so they wouldn't be able to make it to grid and therefore not start the race. And then he'd have less drivers on the grid to compete with. That's how much he wanted to win his first rookie season. And he often raced against people on his payroll. So in, in races, it is claimed that there were as many as four cars on the grid that belong to either Pablo Escobar or, pa or Pablo Escobar Associate. And how they use those cars is, again, to ob obstruct other drivers and to also ensure that these th three drivers don't uh, go hunting for the first place position. They're there to help position uh, Pablo Escobar as the winner. 
Now, despite all this, he still got second, which, you know, that kind of <laughs> – that says a lot. Uh, if he's doing – I mean, he's got the police involved in his racing. Uh, you would expect a, a first-place finish. But even so, uh, somebody managed to sneak by. I couldn't find anything – any sort of news on that guy that beat Pablo Escobar. Um, I'm betting that if he something would have happened to him, it would have popped up in the news. So I'm guessing nothing happened to him, which is good. But, I mean, that's pretty brave. Uh, but at the time, I guess they didn't really know about Pablo Escobar and what he would become. So then we move into the 1980s. Um, you know, 79 is the last 70s year. We move into the 1980s. And Pablo Escobar's interest uh, grew in sort of top flight racing and com competitive driving. So after the Renault 4, he moves into a 1974 Porsche 911 RSR. And he starts looking for other races in South America. Um, and so he's he's kind of getting ready to explore some more driving in the early 80s. But then he challenged Colombia's fastest man, Ricardo Londoño. So he actually challenged him to a time trial race, betting that he would finish within 15 seconds of his time. Um, I would say, you know, if, if this is the fastest man in Colombia... Um, We'll go into it in a bit that, you know, he was a competitive driver looking for an F1 seat. I mean, this guy seemed pretty legit. And to shoot for 15 seconds on a time trial race, granted, it'd be like one lap. Um, so let's use uh, Big Willow, for example. So my PB is a 135. Add 15 seconds to that, uh, 150. Uh, I guess depending on the track and depending on the distance, um, I could see, I could see that pre being a pretty easy drive. Um, I'm not a pro driver though. So, I mean, they'd probably have a much better time, something in the twenties. So yeah, it's still possible. And it was definitely possible for Pablo cause he came within eight seconds of Ricardo. So that, you know, meant, you know, I give him a little even more respect, you know, in terms of, oh, he's, uh, he's actually surprisingly close um, to a professional driver. So that sort of expands sort of his in influence in driving in Colombia. And uh, he kind of raced a little bit in South America and it continued, but it, you know, it didn't really, uh, didn't really go too much beyond that. Uh, because his other business got in the way. So uh, his association with the driver, Ricardo Londoño, sort of marked the new chapter for him in motorsport. And this is how we get to F1. So as his empire grew and he started making billions and billions of dollars, um, you know, his profile kind of grew and he couldn't really race anymore. He needed to stay behind the scenes. So he put his energy behind Ricardo. Um, and his, by energy, I mean his dollars, um, his billions and billions of dollars. So now Ricardo had cartel backing. Um, so his racing career, which was on the rise in the in the 1970s, um, sort of became the focus of Pablo Escobar now that he couldn't drive or, you know, he wasn't really, you know, he didn't really have time to dedicate to motorsport at the moment because he was too busy with cocaine. Um, Londonio went to Europe to become a Formula One driver. That's that. And the person who sent him there was Pablo Escobar. That was uh, that was the route they chose to take uh, to Formula One. And so with his backing um, and uh, specifically the way he backed him is uh, by being supported by the National Association of Coffee Growers, a totally legit company that had no ties to the Patron. Right? Right. So this is how they try to sneak around kind of the money issues, you know, in terms of backing uh, Londoño. Um, so he did drive an XF1 Lotus car at the British Formula One Championship, and that wasn't the best car um, at the time, and he still managed to finish seventh in the race. So despite, you know, having the sketchy backing, Rodonio was actually a pretty good driver. You know, he's finishing uh, seventh in your first race in the British Formula One. That is pretty good. And so because of his driving skills and because the limitless, uh, uh, you know, pockets of Pablo Escobar in terms of his budget, 
he was offered a contract by a struggling Formula One tre- Formula One team, Ensign, and this was for the 1981 season. His first race was in Brazil, um, and he actually was supposed to have a race prior to this, but it, he had some delays with getting a super license and had to wait for Braz- the following race in Brazil. So he attains a, attends his first race, and during that practice run, he had an accident with Kiki Rosberg. And this made the big F1 boss, Bernie Eccleston, to investigate Londonio's drive. Um, it's It seems a little iffy. It almost, to me, it seems like he already has some suspicion and was just looking for an excuse to dive into the records. And maybe this gave him that excuse. Because it's a little weird that you would go from an accident to investigating funding. It's uh, it's strange, or maybe maybe they just hold an investigation top to bottom, usually of everything if anything happens. But that still could be used as a tool. Anyway, so Bernie uh, investigates Londonio, and Eccleston finds that Londonio's money comes from a company owned by none other than Don Pablo, which made him worried about kind of the bad connection and getting you know like F one got uh. A bunch, of, a bunch of push for the Marlboro branding for Ferrari, right? We're, they're not allowed to uh, advertise on cars anymore. Um, could you imagine if they found out that the cartel was behind an F1 team? Yeah, that's a PR disaster for sure. So uh, Bernie Eccleston agreed. And hours before the race, he told the organizers to stop Londonio from racing. And this ruined Londonio's career. That was literally the end of his career. It was the start and finish of his F1 career. It was it was that. Like, his rise to F1 was due to Pablo Escobar and him not ever driving an F1 ever again is also due to Pablo Escobar. That's wild. That is really wild. And I know it's like if someone's going to offer you a seat, man, it's hard to say no. You know, this is like a super like ethical dilemma uh, question, right? If you if you had the talent to be an F1 driver and someone offered you a blank check to become one, but you know that that money was gained through illegal, illicit gains, do you still take it? Now knowing this story, do you still take it? And even, and maybe even before, I don't know if I can jump to before knowing the story, but before knowing the story, would you do it also as well? Also as well. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd like to say no, but I mean, a blank check is kind of hard to turn down. So if you're in that situation, mm, I don't know. Even those of you saying right now, nah, I would never do it. I would never do it. I know there's a percentage of you saying that you would never do it and probably would still do it if faced with the actual dilemma. I don't know, though. The point is, Londonio chose yes, and that was the start and end of his F1 career. And Escobar met his demise in a gunfight in 1993 on a roof. Everyone knows this already. But in many ways, took Londonio down with him. It didn't happen as soon. But after Londonio's failed Formula One career, he returned to his home in Colombia. Where else is he going to go, right? And he began selling boats and planes and helicopters, which is kind of sad for a career that was almost a Formula One career. That's like the top of the top of the top in any sport. Um, And he began selling boats and planes and helicopters. But the most interesting part is who he was selling those things to. He was selling them to drug traffickers and other criminals. And in the year 2000, seven years after Escobar's death, uh, the Colombian court seized $10 million worth of illegally acquired vintage cars and other property um, from Londonio. He avoided prison, but nine years later, while staying at a hotel in the Caspata Bay, he was shot by six gunmen from a rival cartel, and Londonio was killed by 12 bullets. He met the same end that Pablo Escobar did. So now I ask you, 
<laughs> would you t uh, would you still take that blank check? Uh, I don't know. I know Londonio made some like a, like many bad decisions here. Like one, taking the funding. Two, going back to Colombia and still participating. I mean, I guess blood in, blood out. Uh, it's maybe the the moral or whatever we're we're talking about here, right? He can't leave, and therefore he had to work for them and had to accommodate. Um, cause I guess if you think about it, there was a lot of money invested in his career and nothing happened. And would Pablo Escobar take the blame for that? Even though, you know, it is his fault that the deal uh, went through, but is he really going to see it that way? I don't know. I guess I haven't seen enough documentaries about him. I don't, I don't know enough about him to, to even say, but this is crazy that Pablo Escobar almost very nearly made it to F1. And that is incredible. It meant like he, that's how much influence he had in the 80s. Um, and by influence is just by the sheer size of his wallet, which is absolutely insane. It was estimated that in today's dollars, he was worth $79 billion. With that much money, you can literally do anything you want. And he chose in a span of two years to make an aggressive push to F1. And you can say he made it. It didn't last long, but you can say he made it. Man, like, I swear, like, drugs and racing is, uh, there are countless stories. Countless, countless stories. I mean, we've gone through many of them on this podcast. But it's absolutely incredible uh, that it's just every everybody seems to have a... Uh, a story, um, you know, every dis every other discipline, right? Even like uh, motor, uh, yeah, motocross or um, GP racing. I mean, it's uh, it's it's insane. I think it's cool because that gives me a ton, a ton, a ton of things to read and a ton of things to talk about. Because it's I, I, it's. It's unfortunate, right, that this exists in the world, but it's fascinating in the at the same time, like fascinating, fascinating stories. But anyway, that is how Pablo Escobar made it to Formula One. Uh, I'd be curious to hear from a lot of the people that were involved with this situation at the time. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of people that are still around that could tell us a bunch of stories about that time and what was going on. Did he stay behind the scenes? I mean, Pablo Escobar, at his events, he was throwing, like, lavish meals with champagne and women. And, uh, like, the other racers on the grid didn't really believe that he wasn't selling drugs. Um, but everybody outside of the racing circle um, had no idea. But he was you know, even trying to influence everything by throwing a bunch of parties after every race, he would, he would arrive to races in the helicopter in his rookie season in like a very local race using 24 horsepower Renault fours. He was getting helicopter in, into his races. He was getting the full F1 experience even more. So, I mean, I don't, I don't even think F1 drivers get helicopter to the track. Right. Uh, I, I think I think Kobe took a helicopter from Orange County to the Staples Center. That's probably the closest um, you're you're going to get to that, maybe. But so if you're a superstar, you might take a plane or a helicopter. But that's insane. That's absolutely insane. I would definitely think something's up. No, no legitimate business is going to give them enough money like that and not not have it be more hope high profile than that. But that's. That's crazy. Um, you know, to experience that would be would be pretty cool too. Anyway, let's get into our second and last segment of this episode, Chasing Beamer Challenge. I love that. <laughs> I love that. And so we jumped into the next round of Beamer Challenge at Willow Springs in Rosamond, California. This is my third event, so I had missed a few events already, but this time I'm looking for redemption after my fourth place finish in Las Vegas. Um, you know, we talked about that uh, in a previous episode. Um, it didn't go too well, so we wanted to change some things. 
But this time it was Streets of Willow that I'd be running, and this was in a counterclockwise configuration. The day had a peak of 96 degrees, and it was clear skies once again, and I was running in the B5 class. Now, I definitely had to do some prep to the car uh, for uh, for this event, but... It wasn't as much as I had done previously. It was actually pretty good. So I had to reset the alignment. I talked about this on the Vegas episode that the previous strategy um, to take out Camber did not work, right? Trial and error. We tried something. It didn't work. So this time we went back from 3 degrees to 3.7 degrees. We also corrected the toe after the Camber adjustment because you always have to adjust the toe after adjusting the Camber. I don't know. There might be cars out there that you don't have to do both, but usually at least in a little bit, you have to uh, make the adjustment. So I made that adjustment. Um, I chose to continue to run the old Maxxis RC1s that are now on their seventh event um, because of my conversation with Ross Bentley, uh, where, you know, the best way to get better with car control, maybe not the best way, but one of the good ways to get better at car control is to go out there with old tires, right? Go out there with old tires, kind of wrestle the car, you know, wrestle the car back a little bit. You know, if it, if it's sliding, make sure that you're controlling it, catching it whenever possible. And I figured, you know what, I need some of that. So despite this being a competition event, I decided to continue with the old RC ones. I did arrive and set them at 28 PSI cold. That's how I chose to uh, ride them, thinking I would probably land around 33, 34 once it gets a little hot. Um, but I, again, ill-advised for competition, I think, at you know your seventh tr- uh, event on these tires. Um, I would rather probably go with new tires, but I mean, I'm not going to swap new tires for every event. So here we are. Um... It was a big it was a good choice in that honestly even if I wouldn't have podiumed um it was a good idea I definitely lost traction a few times and I was able to catch it every time I felt a lot more in tune with the car a lot more focused uh I could read the tire super super well um and Streets of Willow does really uh both Carlos and Jaime um both made Streets of Willow uh, a comparison with Streets of Willow and Autocross. And it, it very much, especially sort of the uh, the section after the back straight going counterclockwise, it feels very, very much like an Autocross line. Um, now, for that was it for car prep. Didn't really do anything beyond that besides like the normal checks and whatnot. But I did have to do some preparation myself. This was a track that I had never run before. So I wanted to make sure I was preparing much better than I did for Vegas, even though I felt like I did a lot for that. I think the difference here is that the accessibility of all Willow Springs tracks is super easy because they are on Gran Turismo. The only thing that's not on Gran Turismo is an E36 M3 or an E36 at all. Um, They have an E30, they have an E46, but for some reason they decided to skip the E36. Um, It's kind of a bummer. Now, uh, the E30 M3 Evo is the one that they have in the game, and this is actually very, very close in specifications to the E36 M3. 240 horsepower. I think it's like 2,900 pounds. I did add some ballast to take it up to 3,000 since my car is heavier than that. Um, But that's where I decided to do my practice. So I practiced two weeks prior. um, I did, I made sure to do at least 10 laps a day um, to prepare for the track. So I started to get more comfortable with what I was doing. It's not a one-for-one comparison and never will be in terms of video games and uh, real life, but it does help visualize and sort of understand where all the corners are, understand how to take the corners, which is the fastest way through the corners. And it gives you an opportunity to push beyond the limit with zero consequence, which is probably the biggest difference and why it will never be a one-to-one comparison. 
Now, I did watch a lot of YouTube videos as well. There wasn't a lot on uh, counterclockwise for Streets of Willow for some reason. It looks like it, the more the more popular way to run it is clockwise. So there was a lot of videos like that, but there were a few. Um, so I used uh, a bunch of YouTube videos to prepare and then lots of visual visualization before bed. I don't know if it's true, um, but when I was younger, I used to hear a lot that a lot of what we read right before going to sleep uh, were able to retain. I honestly don't know if there's truth or truth to that or not, mostly because I, don't, I think I've only ever studied right before sleeping. Um, so I have no way to see what works better than the other. So you guys tell me if that's the truth. But anyway, I do a lot of visual visualization before bed, um, kind of driving myself to the track, just making sure that I knew where I was going to be when I, when it came to the actual day of the event. Um, so I felt pretty, pretty good. I felt much better going into this day than going into, uh, Vegas on my last event and also a huge huge thanks to race FF pod Jaime um, and his fiance Caroline uh, for joining me on the track for the full day you didn't have to but honestly your company was appreciated and your help was absolutely needed so thank you thank you guys so much for coming and if you haven't listened to race FF pod make sure you go and check it out they are your FF destination that's front wheel drive for you folks that don't know what ff is um but yeah go check it out anyway we get to the big day uh, i drove out to willow springs at 5 a.m it took about two hours felt it felt crazy short compared to the drive that i had through the snow earlier this year um to the same willow springs i think that trip took like i don't know like three and a half hours in the snow, whereas this one, two hours, felt super, super short, which is good because who wants a long drive? But uh, I got there. I unloaded. Uh, it was nice and, and, and smooth. Um, uh, there's very, very little space, I would say, compared to Big Willow in terms of the paddock. Uh, but there was enough, more than enough room for everybody that was attending. Um, it was just a little far to get to the registration area, uh, but it was good. I got there around 7 a.m. Um, and unloaded, make, give, give the car some final checks, make sure everything was okay, got registered, um, and was good to go, uh, ready for my first session at 8.20. So now session one coming into play, I was feeling confident. So I had much more preparation this time around, as I said, uh, even though this was going to be the first time on the actual physical track, it sort of felt like, uh, you know, I had been there a little bit. So that, you know, makes you feel a little more confident, even though I don't know what to expect. The track has been repaved. I don't know what that means. I don't know if the map on Gran Turismo is the old one and it's going to have different uh you know markers because on Gran Turismo you can even see cracks in the in the track and different different colored lines and some of that did come into effect uh but for the most part it was pretty pretty easy to follow the new alignment specs felt absolutely fantastic so the there is a need for a higher spring rate i can tell now um that that would definitely help immensely uh, but the car was performing really well outside of that. Uh, you know, it was turning how I would expect it to turn. It wasn't pushing anymore. Um, the only thing is that the first session isn't grid by time. So it took a few laps to get out of traffic. But once I did, I started to get into rhythm. Um, and and that is this is something that I didn't feel in Vegas. I was actually feeling a rhythm with my laps. Um, so I was a lot more comfortable in the track with what I was doing. Hit this point, break here, shift here. Uh, come wide here, right? Get on the gas earlier here. Uh, it's just, it, it, it all felt like uh, a choreographed balance um, this time. And I was like, okay, cool. That's, uh, I, I'm used to this. It's already sort of baked into my system. I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling pretty good. And my biggest challenges were coming out of the skid pad and coming out of the bowl after the back straight. Um, I did need to get on the gas earlier in those corners. I know that because of Gran Turismo, I was able to get into 
into the gas pedal a little earlier in the game, and I know that was going to yield um, some pretty good time in both of those cases. So those are the things that I identified on the first session, and I could feel it. So I was working on those already. Um, I started around, I think the first lap was around the mid-130s. I started coming down 33, 30, 29, um, and... Eventually got down to 127.941. Um, which I thought was pretty good. I mean, for my first session out on this track, I'm like, okay, cool. I, I broke 128. I'm at 127. Um, if I can improve a little bit more based on what I'm seeing, I'm thinking, you know, maybe 126, 125 is very, very possible. Um, if I just cleaned up a few things and it, it, it did feel messy for me, the first lap kind of not really as precise of, as I would have liked to be. Um, but I was getting there as each lap went on. It turns out that the track record for streets counterclockwise in B5 class is 127.939. I didn't know this going in, but I did look at this when I was looking at the results um, posted online on the Beamer Challenge website. So the uh, track record is 127.939. I got a 127.941. Two one-hundredths of a second. That, uh, yeah, that was, man, super, super close. That would have been nice. But it's, it does feel go good to be that close. It would have sucked to be beaten uh, by that amount of time uh, at the actual event. But that's pretty cool. So we can try that next time. So I come off the track uh, after a full session. I think I did about 11 laps, 10 or 11 laps. I come off the track and I checked the results. I was in first. So my 127 time was enough for first at the time. Now, only three of all the competitors in the class um, had actually run. Uh, they don't run everybody in the same session. I think it depends on how you register. Sometimes the same class can run in different sections. It is time trial, so it doesn't really matter, right? You're not racing anybody, so it doesn't have to happen at the same time. So there was potential for others to be driving, which there absolutely was, and uh, beat that time. But so far, when I come off the track, the closest second place time was at a 129.6. So uh, a little under a two-second gap, or actually a little over? No, a little under a two-second gap. Um, so I felt comfortable about that. I felt like I could get more time on my next session out. So I was like, oh, I'm not really, I'm not really concerned. I honestly, um, I honestly thought I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable here. I, I think this is good. You know, I might take this. And then a new challenger dropped a blistering 125.483 in the following session. And it was a BMW 318 Ti. Um, I had my work cut out for me, clearly. Um, I knew I had more in the car, so I felt comfortable chasing these this time. But I was clearly now second. Uh, so I got bumped down to second place on that time. And I was uh, more than two seconds off. Uh, in this case, so two and a half seconds is what I had to make uh, make up. But I took a visit to the driver just to get an idea of what he was running because normally the 318 Ti is a four-cylinder and there's no way that four-cylinder uh, was putting down those times. I mean, I guess it's possible if the weight was reduced like crazy, um, but it just seemed a little iffy. Uh, and I was right, he has an M52 swap, so he went from a four-cylinder to a six-cylinder, um, and that's the motor out of the three out of the 328i. And it was completely gutted with a single seat and no roll bar. It was, I mean, completely empty in there, and he was on Hoosiers. Super cool guy. We talked about the track. We talked about what each of us are doing, just comparing notes and kind of where we're struggling, where the good points are, you know, how the cars feel. Um, and sort of just left it there. I mean, I really more so wanted to learn from him. I was curious about the car, but I wanted to learn from him. Um, just to see if there's anything I could do better, right? Are there any tips and tricks that you could offer? He had been there before, so he was comfortable with the track. 
Um, but we just left it there. I mean, I didn't really go beyond that. I just kind of introduced myself and went on. Uh, so I went back to check my car. Now, session two was at 10.20 in the morning, and I decided to try something different this time. I dropped the PSI to 26 cold just to see if that would help with a little more grip um, on the on the track. Um, and this time we were gritting by time, so I was going to get more open space, more opportunities, and it didn't work. Um, I couldn't get on the gas as early as my previous session, and I kept sliding around. Um, I had a lot of oversteer. Um or just a lot of skidding, a lot of sliding in general. Um, not even a lot of oversteer, just too much sliding. I couldn't get on the gas. Um, I had to, you know, really slowly uh, roll it on. Um, before I was doing that a lot, a lot earlier and a lot quicker. Um, so I was like, ah, this is probably not going to work. It was more consistent. I kept all my times very, very close together uh, compared to the variances in my first session. But uh, my fastest time was still a 129.547. So I was two seconds off, a little under two seconds off my previous session. Now, it was a lot hotter this time, and all times were dropping. So you can follow results um, on the Race Hero app, and you can see that everybody was getting slower from their first session. So it could be that the heat... Um, was impacting the situation. Now, traffic wasn't really an issue this time, aside from one situation with a pesky Miata overbreaking into the skid pad. Everything was, uh, for the most part, pretty much good and clear. Uh, I was able to get around cars where I would expect to get around them if I was slow, or you know, cars that were passing me were passing me very cleanly and not really interrupting my times and my laps too much. So, uh, you know, it was a very, very comfortable day in terms of traffic. And I was still in second, fla second place because first place was start and first place was starting to look out of reach. Um, you know, I'm doing a 129 now. Things are getting hot. I'm feeling like I, can, I can't get on early enough. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to drop the PSI for my second session or my third session, go back to where I was. And I felt like I was in a really good spot. Um, with the tire at the time, but it could just be that it was the heat and not so much the PSI that I'm running. Um, but, uh, you know, I had one more session to try, um, to try to get a, a little better, but it just wasn't feeling like I was going to get there based on that session. So, um, I feel like I'm firmly in second place at this point. Uh, everybody got slower. So uh, the distance from my second place time to the third place time did not decrease. So I didn't really feel threatened there. But I also didn't feel like I was going to make first. And that is until the driver of the 318 Ti came up to talk to me. And it seemed that others in the class had approached him about his car and it got him thinking. Um... I don't think I know I did it and I think nobody else did based on having a conversation with him about this, but I don't think anyone else like said like hey man you're you're not legal. But I think he did get caught off guard that a lot of us were like, "Whoa, how is this this 318TI doing this?" Right? Um and so he volunteered to be weighed. Uh he was kind of like, "Well, you know, I try to work out the points online and you know, I thought I fell into B5 class, but I think I might be in B4." And I think his time, uh, his B5 time was a second place finish in B4 class already. So I I was a little in disbelief, right, that he was willing to offer that up, but also like mad respect to him to offer that up and be honest about it. It's pretty cool. Like there was a, there was a point where I was like, man, like these rules are, are very much up to the honor system, right? And and I felt kind of like coming from NASA and how, how much they scrutinized me there with all the paperwork I had to turn in and getting weighed at, at every event. You know, it isn't optional. You get weighed every time you come off a competition event with NASA. I was like, well, I know what my weight is. I know what my power output is. I had to get dynoed. I had to do all that stuff. And so I was like, how do we know the people that I'm competing with, uh, you know, is, are also accurate? 
And it turns out that if you give people the ability to be honest, they are honest. Now, I can't say that as a generalization, and that's not doesn't go for everybody, right? But I think for the most part, I believe that most people are going to be honest in, in those situations. And so that's kind of what the lesson that I'm taking away from this, because I was like, that's pretty cool, this guy. To come in here and say, "Hey, I'm gonna get the car away just to make sure that the t- that you know my first place finish in B5 is legit. If not, I'm gonna jump into B4 class." And I'm like, "Okay, cool, man. Now there's drama on this on this finish, right? Now, not only are we looking all looking for better times to improve our positioning, there's also potential for the end of this race." Uh, to have a completely different placement structure or a completely different podium um, to what finishes after the third session. Netflix better come make a show about Beamer Challenge pretty soon because the drama, you know, the drama is crazy. I didn't think I would expect, I, I would have experienced, experienced something like this so soon. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Uh, and I honestly didn't know how to feel about it. I chose not to think about it um until the end of the day i was like i just i don't know how to think about this i don't know what to make of this i when he even brought it up to me i was like look dude i got a bag of tools if you want to throw it in your car and help out with some of that weight i don't know like it just it was a joke but at the same time i was like man i don't know how to i don't know how i feel about this but anyway i decided to you know close that up zip it up for a bit and continue out into my third session and the sun was unbearable now we hit that 96 degree peak you know, it was very obvious that it was hot. You stayed. Luckily, I took a canopy because um, if I would have been out there just under the sun, I would have baked for sure. I think in like a 15 minute walk from the registration back to my truck, um, I've got sunburnt a little, too, because uh, it was the only time I wasn't under that canopy. Um I had to see if I could improve, though. You know, despite the hot track, I'm like, maybe there's some things that I'm not doing. Maybe, you know, I could get a little sharper here, a little sharper there, work on the challenges that that I had described earlier in the day, see if I can get better. Um, But I was sliding around even more. The tires were screaming at me now. Um, They were noisier than ever, which is surprising. I, I, I don't know that I've ever had it where they were that loud so soon. Um... So it, it's I was starting to push a little bit. It I don't know. It just didn't. It, they started to also feel a little, a little gummed up uh, too. But I was like, you know what? I'm gonna run. I'm gonna run it hard. Uh, I'm gonna do the best I can. Even if I'm sliding around, I'm getting some practice. If I can't get a better time, I can't give, get a better time. But I'm just gonna drive as hard as I can. I stopped looking at my Garmin. I stopped looking for that green Delta. I'm I'm cool. I'm just gonna keep going. Um, probably into like the third lap or so, maybe the third lap, um, I start running into fueling issues. So I usually put, get a full tech and gas this time to kind of make up for the old tires. I decided to run a little over half a tank of gas to start, um, and, and see where that gets me in terms of three sessions. I was only planning to do three sessions. Um, but because I knew I had fueling issues already that I hadn't remedied. And this time they came into play again. So because, uh, the fuel pump is on one side of the car, when taking higher G corners, the gas would move to the opposite side and I'd feel my power get cut because the fuel pump wasn't picking up, was no longer picking up fuel, um, because it was pushed all to the opposite side. Um, once I started experiencing that, I'm like, okay, this is pretty much over. So I, I put my fist out of the car and I'm getting ready to go out, uh, uh, get out of the track, head back into the pits and into the paddock. And as I'm idling, I can hear lifter tick through my helmet. I'm like, this is incredibly loud, probably louder than I've ever heard. Um, it, it actually worried me. I was like, is, is this lifter tick now? Like it, it's so loud. Like, am I, are this, are my rod bearings messed up? Is, is this about to go out? Like I, it, there's no point in this, right? If I can't finish the season, I need this motor. Um, and the reason why I, to add to my worry is I had money shifted on the first lap, uh, of that session. It wasn't bad. I caught it but I definitely did money shift. I did do the rest of the session, like another, uh, you know, 
uh, or the previous set. That's actually this. No, yeah, yeah. I'd, uh, I, I did continue on after that, and the motor felt strong. But, I, you know, there's still that worry in the back of your head. And with how loud it was being, I'm like, oh, this sounds bad. And even Jaime even was like, oh, man, turn it off, dude. It, it does not sound good. And I'm like, oh, man, that's that that's that sucks. Like my day's over. Definitely. This motor doesn't seem to be wanting to cooperate at the moment. Uh, and I didn't improve. So that kind of sucks. Um, and I'm just like, well, I guess that's it. Right. It's second place. And I'm still and I'm not even really thinking about the other thing. But the drama continued. As I stated before, only the first three sessions count towards times. So the, while the results are being figured out, you know, there's some time to wait um, and the awards are presented at 2 p.m. While we're waiting, we see the 318 Ti pull up to where we're at. It looks like the Beamer Challenge people are actually very near to where I was in the paddock. Uh, we see him pull up. And they start pulling out some scales. So they had some Bluetooth scales, very high tech, pretty cool. And they start putting the car on these scales. Um, so just, they start letting the suspension settle. I'm moving the we're moving the car back and forth. I decide to help out, and and people are start gathering for a, you know, a drum roll of ep epic proportions. Right, the tension is thick. Uh, you know, will this guy land in B5 or B4? Is this going to change the podium structure? What What is it going to look like? Um, and the car is rated to be at 2730 pounds, 2730 pounds. Um, and all the mods that he had done to the car, including the swap and all the other things he had, the Hoosiers, really didn't give him much room to be underweight. And the result ended up being that he was, two, I think, over 200 pounds underweight, a little over 200 pounds uh, underweight. That's 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 significant. Um, it's an enormous difference, I think. Uh, jumping from 27 to 25 would have been a lot easier. Um, and it gave me the first place finish on a technicality. He jumped into B4. And, you know, I'll go back to what I said earlier. The wind felt a little empty. It almost almost like I stole it, right? I, I was feeling a little bit guilty. I'm like, mm, you know, like I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't loft a complaint against the guy. I didn't, I didn't sort of look to, uh, you know, boot him. My thoughts were beat him. Um Let's try to figure it out on the track, how to find two seconds, right? This is my first session on a track that I've never driven before. I should be able to improve pretty easily as long as I'm looking for the right things. I was like, let's let's beat that time. Let's do it that way. Um, but, you know, I've been waiting dyno through NASA. They have strict requirements, so I'm no, I know I'm within the limits. I had at least 60 pounds on the driver. Um, you know, driver weight doesn't count um in beamer challenge so this uh it's cool because it's going to motivate me to uh to get on a plan uh, and start losing those pounds since there's no penalty for, and only a reward for losing those pounds <laughs> um so there's that um you know had i been 200 pounds lighter and on hoosiers i think i would have done better than my 127.9 on that first session out for sure um just on having on just on the you know how i'd be able to move the cornering, how I would accelerate, 200 pounds is a big difference. It's like I have another person in the car. Um, and the 318 Ti driver ended up still getting second place in the next class up, um, which is cool. I'm like, you know, it's not first place, but you podiumed, man. So that's good. Uh, and sort of relieved me a little bit that that turned out um, that way. And so in conclusion, on this event... We definitely, definitely achieved redemption uh, from Vegas. Uh, you know, the points count. Got my 10 points. Um, so the current leader came in second. Um, the current leader in points came in second. So he still get eight, gets eight points. So I only gained two points on him, uh, which, you know, is not much, but it is, right? As long as I can... 
keep up this level um, in the next few events, which is going to be very, very hard to win every event uh, from here on out. Um, you know, there will be events that I'm not going to, you know, finish first. I just need to make sure to hit the podium from here on out um, to, to, tr to be in contention uh, for the season championship. The next event is again at Streets of Willow, but it will be clockwise. So now I'm going to have to work on learning the track the other way around. Um, you know, I'll be looking to narrow the gap uh, further for sure. Uh, you know, the goal is to get a season championship with uh, Beamer Challenge this year. That is what the goal was for the current campaign. Anything short of that, uh, I would not be happy with. But, you know, if we finish second or third, that's cool, too. I'm not going to be a bad sport about it. But for now, I'm very content with redemption. I think uh, the goal was to bring it to pop back up, right? Don't let the uh, negative results or challenges or obstacles that you get uh, to weigh you down. I know it's easy, right? I think I learned this, you know, watching basketball a lot. They always talk about shooters that miss a lot. Uh, R.I.P. Kobe. Um, you know, you, you forget about your miss right after it happens, right? Like just forget about it and try again fresh. Um, and I think that's important for anything, but that's exactly what I decided to do here. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to let it bother me that I didn't podium last event, but we're looking to make that up for this event. And I was happy to be able to do so. So chasing Beamer challenge continues. We have righted the ship. Um, still in second place for the season, but we're hunting for that first place. And luckily, they did mention that because of the snow day at Big Willow earlier in the year, they're targeting to have another Big Willow day later in the year, and that is my home track. That's where I am most comfortable. Um, so I'm happy and happy to go back and compete there. I'm not going to say it's a gimme. Nothing is ever a gimme. Uh, but as long as I'm confident and comfortable, you know, we, we can we can do some damage. We can we can figure it out. Anyway, that is our episode. You can find us at 91octane.com. That is all letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And if you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. That has been a giant surge on our Instagram page. Uh, you know, if you like the content, uh, you know, make, you know, make sure you follow, subscribe, like everywhere, engage, comment. Uh, honestly, that keeps us going. That keeps us moving forward. Um, uh, you know, it keeps us, uh, with our lights on here, at least the microphones on. Um, so I appreciate that. And, you know, if, and if you want to support in other ways, we do have merch and we actually have a coffee brand too. If you want to buy some coffee, uh, at 91 octane.com slash shop. Uh, I think that's it. Nothing else. Thank you guys so much for listening and see you next week. Have a good night.